Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I am your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative and we sustain everyone in our community. And when I say sustain, I mean providing food, shelter, healthcare, and education. We are able to do that when we collaborate in community. Customarily, at this time, I state who our guests are and then present some news and notes in psychology, medicine, and politics before introducing the guests and starting the interview. Today, I will slightly change my custom because I want to spend even more time introducing our distinguished guests, Dr. Jerry and Julie Brown. So I won't be talking today about the news from the experts, our country's leaders on the pandemic, who have now pointed out that because of the mixed message that President, former President Trump presented to the public, we lost hundreds of thousands of lives that could have been spared. No, I won't be talking about that. And I also won't be talking about hypocrisy, one of the one of the issues in our country that I think is having a debilitating effect on our mental and physical health. And I definitely won't be talking about the obesity epidemic, whereby 72% of our country are now obese or overweight, and it is found that obesity is one of the major contributing variables to mortality caused by COVID. No, I won't be talking about any of those topics today. Instead, I'm going to go right into introducing our guests, Dr. Jerry and Julie Brown. From 1968 to 1971, Jerry Brown conducted fieldwork on the California farm workers movement for his doctoral dissertation at Cornell. In the fall of 68, the United Farm Workers Union founder, the legendary Cesar Chavez, asked Jerry to coordinate the national grape boycott from the union headquarters in Delano, California. Jerry Brown conducted a city-by-city -city analysis of the impact of the national grape boycott based on the U.S. Department of Agriculture weekly reports of table grape shipments in 41 American cities. This led to a successful boycott strategy. Jerry also coordinated an international boycott, which resulted in blockades of California grapes by longshoremen on the docks of London, England, and Malmo, Sweden. In 1979, Jerry Brown founded Floridians United for Safe Energy, FUSE. In 1983, the organization intervened before the Florida Public Health Commission to prevent the Florida Power and Light Company from charging ratepayers, the people, $500 million for the replacement of corroded steam generators 
at the Turkey Point Nuclear Generating Station in Miami, Florida. From 1998 to 2003, Jerry was a research association with the Radiation and Public Health Project, coordinating the National Baby Teeth Study. By the way, it's also known as the Tooth Fairy Project. This was the second baby teeth study in all of American history, and it found an unexpected increase in SR90 in U.S. baby teeth, suggesting that it is likely, and I quote, it is likely 40 years after large-scale atmospheric atom bomb tests ended, much of the current in-body radioactivity represents nuclear reactor emissions. From 1972 to 2014, he served as founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University. Founding professor was a distinction that was given to him by the president of the university. In 1975, Jerry designed and annually offered a course on psychedelics and culture at Florida International University. Yeah, 1975, that's 46 years ago. 46 years ago, in the height of the drug wars, he started that course. In 2006, he discovered an image of the psychoactive Amanita muscaria mushroom, sculpted into the forehead of a green man in Rosalind Chapel, a 15th century church in Scotland. The well-known mycologist, who you've all heard of, Paul Stamets, confirmed that this was a taxonomically correct Amanita muscaria. Ha-ha, this was the catalyst for Jerry and Julie's 10-year search for psychedelic mushrooms in Christian art. Expanding on the ethnomycologist R. Gordon Wasson's theory of the entheogenic origins of religion, the Brown's 2016 book, The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity, hypothesizes that Christianity itself has a psychedelic history. Julie Brown is an author, an integrative psychotherapist who has worked with cancer patients with a focus on guided imagery. Together with Jerry, they are the co-authors of the Psychedelic Gospels. Julie is also an integrative psychotherapist who conducts research on the role of sacred plants in religion. By the way, she also took all of the original photographs for the Psychedelic Gospels, and when you see the book, you'll see what wonderful photographs they are. Julie Brown is also the author of The Role of Will in Psychotherapy, 1985, and co-author of Preventing Radiation Toxicity. How about that for a contribution to us all? Research in toxicity, helping the farm workers, research into psychedelics. A hearty welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Jerry and Julie. Thank you, Richard. Now you're really making me feel my age. <laughs> I want you all to know, listeners, that I am broadcasting today from Zihuataneo, Mexico, and Jerry and Julie Brown are at their home, I believe, in Portugal. Where in Portugal are you? Uh, we're on the beautiful south coast of Portugal near the Spanish border. 
With modern technology, it's almost as if we're sitting in the same room. Let us begin with some questions because as the listeners know, and as you two know, today we're going to be interviewing you as part of a series called Confessions of Psychedelic Elders. It is our hope that by getting prominent people such as yourself to come out and openly talk about your self-experiments with psychedelics over many decades, it will be a message to the public that there is a future, a medicinal future, a consciousness-expanding future, a creativity future, and more with these psychedelic medicines if research is allowed to go forward. How old are you, Jerry? I'm 78 years old. And uh, what is your occupation? Well, I'm an anthropologist. I'm a founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University in Miami, where I teach an online course on psychedelics and culture. One, as you mentioned, that I started uh, way back in 1975. Are you a descendant of the school of Franz Boas? Uh, no, quite, quite the opposite. I'm a descendant of the school of Victor Turner and symbolic anthropology. That's uh -huh. off esoteric for uh, non-anthropology listeners. <laughs> Thank you. And you're presently living with your wife, Julie. Is that correct? Yes, my beloved wife, Julie, of 40 years as of this May, uh, my soulmate, my twin flame. And as I found out when we started writing this book, which I had no idea about, an exceptional editor. Uh, she's the reason why this book is so readable and why one reviewer called it, it's the Da Vinci Code meets the electric acid Kool-Aid test. Thank you, <laughs> I love it. Jerry, were you brought up with religion? Uh, yeah, I was brought up in a, in a Jewish uh, family. Uh, my grandparents were Orthodox Jewish. Orthodox Jews, but I never really resonated with it. I'm very happy and proud to be Jewish, but as a religion, it never really spoke to me. What is your present conception of God? Based on my experience with psychedelics, it was the first time through those experiences that I got to understand God as a divine presence that permeates the entire universe and all of existence. Quite something. Julie, I'm going to switch over to you now, if I may, and ask you the same questions. With due respect, I think you said that you're 73 years old. Is that correct? That's correct. And what is your occupation, Julie? And I'm a psychotherapist, an integrative psychotherapist uh, for 35 years. Were you brought up with religion? Yes, um, I was brought up the first eight years with a Christmas tree. And then my parents, so that we weren't too confused, decided that we were Jewish. <laughs> okay. And what is, what, what, what is your present conception of God? I see God as, as really as in everything. I mean, God is everything. And thou art God. I am God. Um, God is uh, the, the dark and the light. Um, God is the natural world, sacred plants, everything that exists is to me what God means. That sounds very much like the philosophy of my favorite philosopher, Benedictus Spinoza, 
who uh, was called a pantheist, which means, of course, that God, as you put it, is everything and everywhere. I'm going to go to Jerry now and ask you, Jerry, how old were you when you had your first experience with mind-altering substances? 1973. In 1973. And what did you take, Jerry, in 1973? Well, I took a tab of LSD. And do you happen to know what the dose was? I have no idea what the dose was. And in those days, we were quite innocent, naive about set setting or even dose. And there would be things around. And this happened to be a, a tab of orange sunshine that turned out to be quite powerful. It was definitely a, a large dose. And what, what were the circumstances of your taking the, of the large dose of LSD in 1973? A rainbow family gathering at a national park, a Rocky Mountain National Park near Grand Lake, Colorado. Thank you. And who was with you? Well, about 5,000 other people. Well, tell, tell us and tell our listeners, what effect did taking this LSD have on you at that gathering of 5,000 people in 1973? Well, I was off very much on my own, spending a lot of time in the forest. And I had an experience that, well, let's put it this way. Albert Hoffman, the, the discoverer of LSD, when he had the world's first uh, naive LSD trip, thought he was dying. I didn't think I was dying. But I was frightened. I became paranoid. I slipped into a Carlos Castaneda type world. Uh, looking back and learning what I did learn, uh, I realized that I was in a very emotionally unstable time of my life. I was on the verge of getting divorced. I had left Cesar Chavez in the farm workers movement, which had given me great purpose in my life. And I was in a very lost and fragile state. Not a good time to take psychedelics. And I slipped into a kind of Carlos Castaneda world of competing forces. And at one point, Richard, I felt like I was losing control of my mind. I pulled myself out of it. And I, at that time, I realized, wow, these are now I had a visceral experience of how powerful psychedelics were. And as a, uh, a teacher, as an anthropologist, I wanted to learn more, much more. And as they say, if you want to learn something, teach it. So I designed and taught a course on psychedelics and culture. And that first time, you say 1973 in Colorado, dramatic experience, frightening. When was your next experience with psychedelics? Well, um, I, you know, I've not done a lot, a lot of psychedelics. I've kind of look at them as sacred plants and teachers. So only when there's something that I really feel the, the plants can help me understand or resolve or draw the wisdom out or knowledge it from within me. So the next time I was in Jamaica in 1979, I was 37 years old. And um, I was walking down the beach, this beautiful beach in Negril, turquoise water. And this uh, uh, Rastafarian comes along, uh, dreads bobbing, eyes blazing. And uh, he said, hello. And I said, hello, who are you? He said, I'm the mushroom man. And I have mushrooms from the Blue Hills of Jamaica. And I opened it. I, I scratched it. It turned blue, which is the characteristic color of psilocybin when it oxidizes. And I said, how much? He put up five fingers. I gave him $5. And I took the bag home. And my roommate uh, turned them into a tea. There were about six caps there with honey. 
And I was off and away on my first, my uh, next experience, a very profound one. So your first experience in 1973 was with LSD. Your second experience in 1979, six years later, was with psilocybin. And what effect did the psilocybin have on you? Tell us about that. This was an amazing experience and helped me find a, a new sense of passion and purpose in life. Um, I, I went out to the beach. I pulled on my Speedo bathing suit when I could still fit into it. Um, I, was, I had an orange. My roommate threw me an orange. And I was walking out the beach throwing this orange up in the air and catching it. And all of a sudden, I realized that it was taking longer and longer for the orange to come up and come down. And then I heard this voice speaking that I can only understand as a divine voice that said, today, I'm going to take you to play in the temple of the sun. And there I was definitely in the temple of the sun. And then the voice spoke again and said, today, I'm going to show you your death. I went out past that onto the beach. I communed. I was looking out from the dunes out over the ocean and the cloud turned into a metallic form like a crystal that started growing by quantum leaps. And all of a sudden the voice said, that is atomic energy. It is evil. You must destroy it. That was the last I ever heard of the voice. I crashed out and slept most of the next day. The following day, I got on a plane back to Miami. I come out of customs and the Miami Herald big banner says, Three Mile Island, 30 minutes from a meltdown. This was the day. So with this amazing synchronicity, I understood that I was destined to move on to a new movement, the anti-nuclear and the renewable energy movement. And that's what big piece of my work over the last decades. And that's some of what I read about in, when I introduced you, of course. At the time that you were on that beach and you had these revelations, okay, Jerry, so you, you didn't share it with anyone, but you came back, you had those revelations about the danger of atomic energy, you read this headline, and you go on to get involved in the anti-nuclear movement. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in signs and synchronicities in the Jungian sense. And the coming together of that, that experience I had in Jamaica with the physical reality the next day of Three Mile Island said, this is, this is your direction you know, for the next phase of your life. And it's something I've worked in and been very gratified about. I've shared these only with Julie. And, um, you know, these substances were and continue to be, for the most part, illegal. So I, I didn't want to jeopardize my situation at the university and my ability to teach this course. And uh, finally, Julie and I wrote about our experiences in our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, which was published in 2016, which has uh, several of our most significant psychedelic experiences written out in the book. For those of you who are listening, Psychedelic Gospels, published by Inner Traditions Bear and Company. You can easily find it on Amazon.
Julie, back to you. How old were you when you had your first experience with mind-altering substances? I was 21 years old. And what was it? Uh, <laughs> um, it was a combination. It was called it was called Product Four. I knew nothing about it. I was at a music festival, and someone came up to us who was a chemist and said, "I just created this really amazing psychedelic. Are you interested?" And we said yes. I was with my partner at the time, and um, it was um, LSD, mescaline. I'm sorry, sorry, psilocybin. DMT, and I'm not really positive of the fourth product. Julie, tell <laughs> us how, how, at 21 years of age, never having taken a mind-altering substance, where did you find the courage, or some might say the recklessness, to take, quote, product four from a person that you just met? Tell us about who that person was at 21. Well, um, I was always a very sensitive, empathic person from the time I was a little girl. And I truly believed in my intuition um, to, uh, at that time, when it, um, at that moment, when he offered us the, um, that, that uh, entheogen. That's who I was. So I, I just jumped at the chance because I was searching for my good self, you know, my the essence of who I was. <laughs> Did, had, you, had you read about mind-altering substances or had friends told you? Did you have some, some kind of connection in any way or uh, with him prior to this man showing up with Product 4? Yeah, my, my brother was kind of my guide like that. Um, we lived in Miami Beach, Florida, um, and he kind of turned me on to cannabis when I was 17. And uh, after that, he moved to New York City, and I moved there after him. I kind of watched him, and, and uh, he turned me on a little. And then we... Um, and then I went to this concert and it was, uh, it was, I'm really happy that I didn't do much before that because this experience was so powerful that um, I don't know if I would have had this experience if I hadn't, you know, if I had been doing uh, psychedelics before that. Tell us a bit more about the circumstances, you know, what it, what the environment where you were when this, after you took this product for, you know, what was around you? Where tell us more about your, you know, the environment. Um, the environment. Well, we were on the outskirts of Philadelphia. We had taken a bus there to go to this music festival, and it was in a big open space, like a huge, I guess, uh, place where they gave concerts. And um, yeah, that's where I was. So I was, you know, very, in a very comfortable environment. And after you took the material product for. Uh, did you interact with people? Did you close your eyes and go inside? What was what were you like behaviorally? Well, um, I just really found a place on the grassy hill, and I ingested the um, product four. You know, as the first group came on, uh, this gospel group, I just laid back on the grass and closed my eyes and became very relaxed, listening to the music. You know, as the sun started to set. After a while, um, you know, I noticed colorful patterns behind my closed eyes. 
Um, and I felt this, this tingly feeling in my gut that um, I had gotten before when I had done one little LSD experience, but it was nothing. And um, out of nowhere, so the sky was was darkening outside. Inside my eyelids, the light was getting brighter and brighter. And suddenly, shockingly, I was traveling outward and upward towards space. It's like my mind just bolted out of my body so fast that I felt like I was shot out of a cannon at the speed of light. Uh, I, you know, I sped on and on seeing these intense flashes of light and color until everything slowed down and the streaks of light condensed into stars. And uh, as I moved through space, I began to notice, this sounds crazy, but I noticed that every star had a face in it and that I recognized every face and felt a loving connection to each and every one. I became aware that my experience was in another dimension and it was unlike any encounter I had ever known. I did not dwell on this. I simply experienced the beauty of it, the utter magnificence of feeling connected to every particle and person in existence. I would say you were having a Spinoza moment of yeah, a, real, really. a realization that you are part of, not witnessing, but part of everything. Yes, exactly. I, I think I am everything. Indeed. <laughs> and, I, and, and thou art everything also. Yes. That's what I learned is that because we're all not just connected to each other, but we are each other. Did you communicate verbally with the person you were with during this experience, or was it pretty much an intrapersonal uh, experience? Well, let me put it this way. I, when I became conscious of the earthly plane again, I had been gone for a really long time. I think it was a two-day concert. And I sat up and I noticed that I had missed the entire concert and that almost everyone was gone except for the cleanup people. I was left with some profound alterations of my mind and body. You know, I, I was less afraid of everything, even death, and still am not afraid of death at all. I felt free and at peace for the first time in my life. Most importantly, I, I realized that I was connected to every living thing and felt much more love for myself and all life. And although this experience of cosmic consciousness took place over 50 years ago, it produced beneficial changes in my life that I am still grateful for today. And it changed my entire life path. So there it is. You, you can't see me because we're doing audio only, but I'd like you to know that I so much resonate to what you're saying that I'm choked up with tears in my eyes. It's a deep, I can feel it, you. It's a, a very deep resonance because I've, I have had the same experience that you have had, and that's part of what is 
propelling and compelling me to do this series so that the public can know what it is that we've experienced. So wait, that was about 50 years ago. And what did you have another experience? <laughs> was, was, that, was there any place to go? Did you have another psychedelic experience after that? Oh, yeah. Take us to the next one, if you can recall, please. Okay, well, the next profound one, I would say, was um, 1970, I think, Okay. at that point. And um, that one was an experience with my sister and a, and a friend, a good friend of ours. We were staying with his friend, our friend's friend, and he offered us some psilocybin. He had you know, dried the mushrooms and powdered it, and, um, and we ingested that. And uh, we, started, we were saying goodbye at that time, and we were going to go back to Berkeley. Um, where we were staying at the time. And we were, <laughs> we decided we were going to go to Mount Tamapias in California, Mount Tam. And uh, as we had decided that, this car drives up next to us, a shocking pink Corvette with a guy inside, a really good looking guy in a shocking pink suit. <laughs> and he asked us, where we were going. And we said, we're going to Mount Tam. And he said, jump in, I'll be your guide. So we got in the car and we sped off to Mount Tam. And it was about a 40 minute trip, 45 minute trip. And uh, he put on great music. And my sister and I were in the back seat, just hanging out, listening to the music. And we uh, drove up to the mountain and then we started driving up. And at some point, we asked if we could stop at the rest stop, which we did. And I had, we, we all had come up on this, whatever we were taking. I think my, our friend was uh, taking peyote because he, there wasn't enough psilocybin. And uh, whatever we were on <laughs> was, was kicking in really strongly. And when I tried to get out of the car, I realized my body was telling me, you have to move in a certain way in order for all your cells, your molecules to line up perfectly so that you can walk. And it took me God knows how long to get to the bathroom. And I don't know how long it took me to figure out how to do what I was doing in there and then get out. But when I got out, when I came out, my friend and my sister were standing in the parking lot waiting for me. And I went to hug my sister and I put my arms around her and she put her arms around me and I merged completely into her. And I became her and she I became me. To, in my, in my uh, experience, not necessarily in hers, but in my experience, that's what I experienced. And after that, um, we got back in the car and we started to, I, I heard, as, as I was getting back in the car, I had just remembered this today, by the way, when I was thinking about this, I heard voices like a, like a choir calling my name, like singing my name. 
come, come this way, come to me, come to me. And um, I was, I became afraid and I got in the car instead. And I drove in the car and as I was driving, this dark feeling came over me. And I looked in the mirror and I saw my sister's beautiful young face and she looked so radiant. And then I saw my own face and I looked so old, like, like a witch, like a, like a decrepit witch. And the, all my old feelings of feeling pathetic <laughs> were coming back to me uh, from my abusive and uh, emotionally and physically abusive childhood. And so at that point, um, I asked to stop the car and we got out of the car and Chris and Amy started walking up ahead and um, I walked off into the meadow and I laid down in the meadow and I just felt all the life returning to me. And I looked at all the little bugs in the grasses, crawling little ladybugs and these beautiful little insects and all of these, this life around me and on me. And I, I came back to life again. But I also thought about that experience of feeling dark and feeling pathetic. And there was a moment there when I walked off and this girl, this beautiful young girl on a bicycle with golden hair came up to me on the bike and said, he, I, I have this joint. Do you want the rest of it? And I said, sure. And I tried to light it and I couldn't get it lit. And that was like an affirmation to me of how pathetic I was. And I gave it back to her and I said, sorry, I, I can't do it. And she took it and she went bicycling away. And I um, decided that I needed to do something that would prove to myself that I wasn't pathetic, that I was much more than that. And I had forgotten all about my cosmic consciousness experience at that time, at that moment. And I was just in this place where I had to prove to myself that I was courageous and I was strong and I was wise. And I had, there was enough of me to bring to the world. And so I began to climb up the mountain we were halfway up at that point, I think. And I climbed and I climbed and I climbed and I walked and walked and walked for hours. And after a while, it, it became sunset. And I realized that I was on top of this mountain and I was going to, um, what was going to happen to me? I was on this top of the mountain. I had made it and I felt victorious. And at the same time, I was like, what am I going to do now? Because it was dark. So I went into the forest and I curled up on the pine needles and I started to rest and go to sleep. And then I heard a car and I heard another one and I realized there was a road nearby. So I jumped up and I, I followed the sound of the cars and I came to a road and I put my thumb out and the first car that came by stopped for me. And uh, it was a van and um, he was a lovely, lovely person, picked me up and drove me back. And that was it. A marvelous <laughs> story. And I'd like now to know something about how this experience 
And if you want to go back to the other one, the Cosmos experience as well, how did that play out in your daily life thereafter? Yes. All of who I was in those experiences are part of me. And it took me many, many years of integration and psychotherapy um, to, to understand what everything meant. Because I think we are always we are on this planet really for two reasons. One to learn how to love and one to learn our lessons of this lifetime. And that's what I did until I met Jerry. And then I learned more lessons and he learned more lessons. We all learn more lessons and we're always learning more lessons. And that's how I, how I, I am now a, a different person, a changed person because I am 73 now. And I, I feel like I've learned a lot, but I have a lot more to learn. <laughs> when you say I have a lot more to learn, I'm going to share a story. One of the other, uh, confession of psychedelic elders was with uh, Dr. Alan Ajaya uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, he's 80 years old and he's a distinguished author uh, who you may have heard of and, um, and psychotherapist. And he's taken LSD 900 times. <laughs> and I said to him, Alan, 900 times, do you ever feel like saturated like maybe you've learned what there is to learn from this medicine and very calmly he said to me there's always more to learn exactly and that's what you're saying as well and so these are two monumental experiences which you're sharing with us and also sharing with us that the experiences themselves were like perhaps the chapter headings in the beginning of a book and the integration over time is what filled in the depth of the information that had been passed on to you. And, and, I, and, and I find that that's an important message, the way you talked about integration and doing psychotherapy thereafter. You know, it's almost like mm -hmm. fill, filling in the dots. And on the one hand, you talk about being shot from a cannon at a tremendously fast speed. I've had that experience myself, by the way. And, <laughs> and um, in fact, I'll take an aside and tell you that one time, maybe 60 years ago, I took dimethyltryptamine and it felt like I was shot in something faster than a, ca than a canyon way out into <laughs> outer space. And, uh, and I, I was so excited by it that as soon as it, uh, it, it, uh, it, it ceased, I asked to take it again. And it was 15 minutes. And after that, the, I looked at the person and I said, you know, I think I'm getting hooked here. I want to try it again. I took it again. Again, I'm shot out there in, uh, like lightning. And this time when I got out into outer space, I see a big red sign, literally a big red sign that says caution. And then I hear it. I hear a voice saying anything that can move you that fast is to be deeply respected with the <laughs> beautiful so this time when i came back he said to me do you want some more i said no thank you i just was told <laughs> that i've had enough <laughs> okay those are two large experiences julie what what, what can you was there another that you want to share after that 
No, I think that's enough. Oh, sure enough. <laughs> Tremendous. Okay. And in addition to, to Jerry, uh, or at the time, who else did you share the experiences with? Did you do, were you able to share them or were they pretty much something that you lived with to integrate and work out on your own? Yeah, I never shared them with anyone but Jerry. Uh, Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. And Th those two, yeah. Now, in Jerry's case, as you heard, he didn't share because, as we all know, it could have been a risk to his reputation and to his career because of the repressive and suppressive attitudes in our country. Is that the reason that you didn't? Was there a fear that if you told people something not good might happen to you? Or were there other reasons? Well, also because I, I've always, I've worked with Jerry on um, the Radiation and Public Health Project, the nuclear project for five years. And um, I had to be careful about what I said in public. I was the tooth fairy, actually. <laughs> I collected all the baby's teeth. I was a resource director and I worked with Uh-huh. Yeah. And I worked with the, the parents, you know, with their ch children that had cancer. And mm -hmm. So... Yeah, that's the reason. I understand. Yes. So it was certainly a concern for, for your reputation and your career and the good work that you were doing in another specialty. Yes. Yeah. Let me, let me add this. Even if it had not been the Nixon war on drug 1970s, uh, and I would not have shared my experience because I felt it was a sacred, private getting to know God as I understood it experience, and I wanted to hold it, not diluted by sharing it. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to switch to you, Jerry. So welcome back now. And uh, Hi. now b both of you have shared large experiences, monumental experiences with psychedelic materials. We're going to switch now and ask you some questions about tiny experiences. Jerry, have you ever done what's called microdosing? Living in California where things were legal, from time to time, I would microdose on uh, a, a mint, a 2.5 milligram mint that was sold at the medical marijuana places. What did it have? 2.5 milligrams of tetrahydrocannabinol? Yes. And what can you share with us about microdosing with, uh, with, uh, with cannabis, with tetrahydrocannabinol? Uh, just it's a very nice experience for focusing and coming completely into the present moment, along with a nice um, energy rush. It's sub microdosing is sub-perceptual. It is not in any way hallucinogenic. Uh, it turned out, and people did not learn about this till later on, that Albert Hoffman, the founder, the discoverer of LSD, microdosed late into his life. He died at 102 years old. So uh, microdosing has now become uh, a trend in some areas. There are Rolling Stone articles about the drug that your boss would like you to take uh, because it helps people uh, with creativity, connectivity, focus, energy, and um, it's a wonderful thing in my experience. Have you microdosed, Jerry, with other substances than uh, 
tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, the active ingredient in marijuana? No, I have not. You mentioned uh, earlier in our interview that you have uh, you have written about your uh, psychedelic experiences uh, in your book, The Psychedelic Gospels, correct? Yes. Um, the experiences we related today are talked about in different parts of the book, The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity. Good. So people can... People can reference those if they want to. I'm going to now ask, Julie, I'm going to ask you the same questions. Uh, have you ever microdosed? Yes, I, I microdose presently on LSD. And um, when, when did you begin? How far back was that? Uh, some months ago, because um, I was having um, two problems. One was I noticed that I was losing words. And, um, and I, you know, it was hard for me to, to recall words, certain words. And the other thing that was happening was when I was waking up in the morning and I would sit up, I would be very dizzy. And so, um, I, I was reading a paper, um, by a company called, uh, Eleusis. Yes, Eleusis. And uh, it was about uh, microdosing LSD and its potential for removing or alleviating uh, 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 brain um, a plaque and also uh, for elasticity of the brain, neural elasticity. So that's, that's why I started. And um, my, my dizziness um, that I was experiencing is virtually gone. It's been about three months. And um, my, um, I think that I'm doing much better than I was before. I'm not completely back. But I, <laughs> I was always, I was always searching for words, even when I was younger. So but this but I feel much better now that I'm, I'm really, I feel much, much, much better. And you're, you mentioned that you're microdosing with uh, LSD. Uh, how many micrograms do you take at a time? Uh, 12 micrograms. 12 micrograms. Thank you. That's very helpful. I think, you know, generally speaking, some people take somewhere between about 8 and 15, as it varies with individual people. Some as high as 20 for a microdose. Uh, remember, for those of you listening, when you take a microdose, you don't notice it. If you notice it, that means, and not that there's anything wrong with noticing it, and you might like noticing it, but if you notice it, you're no longer on what we're now calling operationally defining as a microdose, and, and that's important to know. And uh, what protocol, Julie, are you are you uh, following? How often do you uh, do you take the microdose? Um, I do it every other day. That's what I've been doing so far. But then after the end of the third month. Um, which is coming up, I'm going to take a week off to see what happens. Yes. And, you know, our colleague and dear friend, uh, Dr. Jim Fadiman, in his book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, I believe he's recommending one day on and two days off and one day on and two days off. Uh, I, I interviewed uh, a fellow named Paul Austin, who has started a program called The Third Wave, 
about microdosing. Right. And Paul told me when I interviewed him, I've interviewed him several times, that he uh, started out uh, by taking microdosing, uh, he microdosed for nine months because he particularly wanted to make changes in his personality, uh, which he, he said he made successfully. And so we have that on record. And I've also heard, Jerry, what you said, that, uh, that, um, that Albert Hoffman himself, I, I've heard, I don't know if it's accurate or not, I should ask Rick Doblin sometime, uh, that, that, uh, that Hoffman took LSD, one report I had, that he took it every, every day for the last 10 years of his life. Did you hear any description of, of how long he took it for, Jerry? Uh, no, I, I've not heard that, but I'm, I'm sure it's out there. And obviously, look, in, in those early days, everyone was looking for the mega dose, uh, you know, tune in, turn on, blast off experience, uh, these transformational experiences that Leary was talking about, that Ramdas was talking about, that Michael Harner, anthropologist with ayahuasca, was talking about. So um, these, the microdosing kind of was way below the radar, but now it's out there. And the very interesting thing, Jim Fadiman is the world's expert on microdosing. And his website, microdosingpsychedelics.com, one word, microdosingpsychedelics.com, presents the search that he's been conducting for years with over a thousand people in multiple nations who've microdosed following his one day on, two days off protocol and reporting. And Jim is using that to find out what the benefits of microdosing are so that he can now go to the rigorous methodological researchers and say, let's really test this hypothesis about we've had some people who it's obliterated, they're stuttering overnight. Let's do a study on that. So um, this is a very exciting area. You know, I appreciate what you're saying very much about uh, doing uh, further research. I also want to point out that anecdotal material over time with a substantial end is also real science. When you get up to a thousand people or more uh, reporting, uh, that counts. And, uh, uh, and it counts in a, in, in a very important way. And, and we're all thankful, as you point out to Jim, for collecting uh, this information. While, while you're back, uh, Jerry, uh, what about your experiences with psychedelics would surprise your colleagues? Well, um, along this line of the conversation, I think that um, what would surprise them most would be Julie and my belief that psychotherapy using guided imagery um, with psychedelics could not only alleviate the psychological distress of cancer, as Johns Hopkins found in its psilocybin cancer trials, but can actually cure or send cancers into remission. And we developed these ideas. Uh, I was reading about the Johns Hopkins psilocybin controlled studies where it did alleviate anxiety, uh, depression, and fear of death in advanced cancer patients. And the key, and this is really one of the most fascinating findings in the whole field of psychedelics, was that both Johns Hopkins and NYU reported, and I quote, 
In both trials, the intensity of the mystical experience described by patients correlated with the degree to which their depression and anxiety decreased. So here we have a mystical experience induced in a laboratory by white-coated shamans and who are bringing religion, mysticism, back into the healing process. Speaking with Julie, who's worked for over 30 years with about uh, 50 cancer patients who, who stayed with her long-term, many of them coming to her after traditional treatment of radiation and chemotherapy failed, Julie found that without psychedelics, it was illegal, she never used it in her practice, but through psychosynthesis and guided imagery, she was also able to create or engender a mystical experience in her clients. And this led in 80% of the cases to remission from cancer as verified by the, by the client's oncologist. So we have put out this hypothesis that it's time to research if psychedelic therapy combined with directed guided imagery could actually make a physiological impact on putting cancers into remission. Again, anecdotal, but pointing in an important direction. It's right in line with my thinking that the combination of psychedelic medicines and guided imagery will enable us to take volitional control of involutional processes. And so healing, which now most of which is involutional, when we have a cut on the back of our hand, it heals and we're healing it, but we don't know how we're healing it. We're not directing it, but yet we are directing it. We call it involutional. A scab forms, the scab falls off, the skin is back together. I think that through guided imagery and psychedelics, we will learn how to take control not only of that healing process, perhaps as an entry point, but then take the guided imagery internally to our internal organs and be able to do tissue repair. And I think this is very related to what you're saying about being able to do repair of cancer. As Julie makes very clear every time she speaks, she doesn't heal anyone. She uses the tool of guided imagery to empower them to tap in to that internal guidance so they can bring about their own healing process. But the real significant thing, which we've touched on, also with the LSD microdosing, so much of the ongoing research, which is now legal now under the psychedelic renaissance in places like Johns Hopkins, UCLA, NYU, Mount Sinai, um, is moving in the mental health direction. And that's very, very important. But there is also this aspect, Richard, that you uh, affirmed that psychedelics may also hold a key to physical healing. And we're just on the edge of an ocean of understanding of that process. I think psychedelics may hold a key to, to physiological healing and also I, th I think we already know anecdotally, and some of us are quite certain that they, the psychedelics will facilitate creativity. 
And this is, of course, we've been as evidenced by the work of, of Watson and Crick with, with the DNA molecule, Steve Jobs, and even Carl Sagan's widow, who acknowledged that he used LSD uh, in his work. Although, again, he did it secretively out of fear for what might happen to his reputation had he acknowledged such. So, you know, we heard a bit from from Julie about the effect that these uh, psychedelic experiences had on her ongoing life, lasting for over 50 years. In your case, do you feel that you have been successful in what you might call bringing back information and wisdom from your psychedelic experiences? There's no doubt about it. And it's one of the things that Julie and I have had the good fortune to share our experiences as psychonauts. So we're coming from a place where, you know, trying to talk about what are often indescribable, ineffable experiences, we, we have a mutual understanding. But um, I think one of the things we're all looking for is work that we can be passionate about in the world, a sense of purpose. And that's what that psilocybin experience in Jamaica did for me, taking me into an area of uh, anti-nuclear work, of legal interventions, of renewable energy. I wrote two books on the topic. I directed a safe energy project for the World Business Academy in Santa Barbara, California, and it has been an extremely worthwhile and enriching part of my life to see now that solar is the cheapest form of energy and hydrogen power, uh, the most plentiful molecule in the universe, is going to be used in fuel cells as a way to uh, truly eliminate greenhouse gases. And so, um, and so much of this came from that experience you had under the influence of psychedelics when you were given the warning about the danger of atomic energy. No, no doubt about it. And then later on, when Julie and I got together, uh, I had been married before. Uh, it was we got married very rapidly. We were more like brother and sister, and um, it was not meant to be. But I had never m I made an emotional decision or commitment in my life. And when I met Julie, and she was very clear, you know, I, I want to get married. I want you to support my well-being as I perceive it, and I'll support yours. And um, I panicked, and I. You know, it's embarrassing, but I proposed once or twice, and then twice she reminds me and backed out. And finally, I think Julie said, you know, let's do the truth serum. Yeah. Let's do LSD together and see if we're meant to be. And we did LSD sitting in her room in Miami. And our molecules, our entire beings intertwined and went up into the heavens. And there was not one iota of resistance in my being or in hers. And I came out of that knowing this is right. And 40 years later, it was right. So we certainly were able to bring back that information and knowledge uh, into our relationship. That's a beautiful, beautiful story, Jerry. And as you were telling it, I was picturing the Alex Gray painting of the two people and you see them in their electrical form, uh, hugging. I don't know if you're familiar with that painting, but I you, I, yes, I was picturing I was picturing the two of you 
as those two holding each other with your molecules merging. <laughs> you know, I, I know, and uh, at times we joked about someone who set up a psychedelic dating service, but I don't think that's going to fly. So, Julie, before we go on to my next series of questions, is there, which is going to be about the future, is there anything you want to add at this time to get out to our listeners and the people who eventually will be reading this interview? Anything about your psychedelic experiences or the effects that you might want to add? And you could take a moment to think about that if you like, uh, because we're going to be moving on to the future. I would just like to say that um, that there's that you know that LSD is yeah like Jerry said the truth serum and it can expose um, a lot of who you are and if you're not ready for that. Um, don't get pushed into it by anyone. Like any, if you're, you know, a, a young person and shouldn't be too young because um, the brain isn't ready for LSD until you're much more mature, like 21, 22, 23 years old, maybe even older. Listen to your your inner guide, and that's what I also call the still small voice, the spiritual self that is always there, ready to be heard. But most people, there's so much chatter going on by the intellect and so much going on by the technology that they don't hear that still small voice. But it's very important to listen to that voice, to know if it's right for you or not. And and for me, it always felt right. And yes, I had some very powerful experiences, some of them terrifying. But, you know, here I am, and I'm, I was ready. So that's, all, that's what I'd like to add. Thank you. And, of course, we've come a long way since your personal, courageous experimentation 50 years ago. Because as one, <laughs> as one of you pointed out uh, during our, our meeting today, we now know to use a guide when we take these medicines. And we know that the setting is a critical and you know the, the and what we have around us in terms of safety and security, so that we have now managed to turn what might be called a bad trip into a good trip, because with the help of a guide, we can listen to that small voice that you're referencing. We can look at things that are scary. We can master them, conquer them, and come out of the experience with confidence that those things lurking about are no longer threatening to us. And that, of course, is a, is a, great, uh, is, is a great thing for us each. So, well, that is good, but I, that is a good thing. Um, but what I'd like to say here is that the bad experiences or the f fearful experiences, the scary things, are sometimes where you learn the most. And it's like life, too, you know, lessons in life. So um, I wouldn't um, be afraid of having these experiences because you're not going to die from them and you're probably going to be um you know, learn things in, that are extremely important to you otherwise you wouldn't be there in the first place so that's all well, about that uh, yeah i want to underline something you just said julie which is you said you're not going to die from them and and that's very important for our listeners to know 
And Dr. Dave Nichols has been on this program. And Dr. Dave Nichols is uh, the most prominent uh, scientist in the area of LSD uh, on the planet, uh, arguably. And he said uh, on this program that no one on record has ever died from LSD. And, and that's, that's right. And that's including people who have even accidentally taken astronomical doses uh, beyond one's wildest imagination. So, Julie, while you're here, uh, before I go back to Jerry, uh, or maybe I'm just going to ask this question to both of you and, and, and see how you want to handle it. What do you see as the future? Is there anything we haven't said about the future of psychedelic substances and how they'll be utilized? Or did we cover that uh, a few moments ago when we were talking about healing and creativity? Yeah, um, let me let me come into it this way. The novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald said, there's no second acts in American lives. Well, fortunately, thanks to the psychedelic renaissance and the rigorous research that's going on showing the mental health benefits of psychedelics and the decriminalization, legalization movements that are taking place, psychedelics is getting a second act and it's getting it right this time. And um, we believe psychedelics will eventually become fully integrated into American culture, certainly in a medical therapeutic setting, uh, probably for problem solving since the high tech companies are inviting people like Fatiman and, and to consult with them and help them know how they can employ this, what is essentially a mind app. Um, and also we think that given the personal growth, spirituality aspects of it, that it will become a right, R-I-T-E, and a right, R-I-G-H-T, of religious freedom for cognitive liberty under the First Amendment. Um, we're living in a world where over a billion people are religiously unaffiliated, and many Americans and a third of young Americans say they're um, spiritual, but not religious. And maybe what we're witnessing now with psychedelics and the coming about of direct experience of the divine, direct experience of your spiritual self, is something that will eventually blossom into a psychedelic reformation, where this will become an important part of religious experience done in sacred centers for healthy people with the availability of God's. Jerry, that is so beautifully said. I think it's a perfect time to conclude our interview. I don't know if I'd know where to go next, though I did promise to ask you, uh, what's next for you two in your lives living in Portugal? Maybe take a couple of minutes to give us a, some headlines. One of the things, just for your listeners, for anyone intrigued by this topic and thinking about it, I we would strongly recommend two books. One is Jim Fadiman's The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Sacred Therapeutic Safe Journeys. And the other is Michael Pollan's best-selling book, How to Change Your Mind, which also describes in great detail his own explorations of LSD and psilocybin and DMT that he undertook to write that book. Um, and for us, basically, um, 
a lot of teaching is now in the future. Our mission is to research, write, and educate about uh, psychedelics. And because of the psychedelic renaissance, my university, Florida International University in Miami, invited me to come back and teach an online course, Psychedelics and Culture, which I'm doing with over 100 students, many, many of them psychology majors. In May, I'll be teaching uh, an, a once-a-week course for four weeks for the Psychedelic Society of London. It's a short course, two hours a night, four times. And you can find it at Psychedelic Society and look at the events section. Uh, Julie and I are really trying to explore and write about this hypothesis of the use of psychedelic therapy with guided imagery to possibly heal or send cancers into remission. We have a blog on it that is published in Psychedelics Today. Just look at Mystical Experience and Psychedelic Therapy. Mystical Experience and Psychedelic Therapy, Julian Jerry Brown, and it will uh, take you uh, to that. So we kind of feel this is uh, where we're headed. We also are very wary of phony teachers, phony holy, phony holy people, uh, urban shamans and wannabe shamans. And I think that there's a lot that people have to do in the psychedelic community uh, to deal with people that you find in any segment of the world who are not authentic uh, in the work. So this is our work, basically, and of course, to continue to research and write about the psychedelic gospels and the uh, spectacular images of psychedelic mushrooms, both Amanita muscaria and psilocybin, that we documented and Julie photographed uh, for our book. And one of the things that uh, was most exciting, we were in Turkey uh, under the Byzantine church. Uh, and this, Julie, made a major discovery of a psychedelic uh, mushroom on the sponge of the crucifixion in a uh, the dark church of Turkey. And this is the first discovery outside of the Western European church. So we're going to be writing that up as well. So a lot of research, writing, and education in our future. Tremendous. Tremendous. And thank you so much for sharing this information for the references you're giving our listeners to where they can find out more, but mostly for sharing your personal lives and the personal uh, satisfaction and benefit that you've had in your psychedelic explorations. Thank you, Julie and Jerry Brown, very much. And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And special thanks to our producers, Charlie Deist and Evacheska DeAngelis, our marketing director, Pamela Bieri, and our guest curator, Michelle McMillan, all of whom make this broadcast possible. The preceding program was brought to you by Thanksgiving Coffee. The founder of the Thanksgiving Coffee Company, Paul Katzif, is a social worker and political activist who has literally improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. The way he's done that is by getting them a fair percentage of the money that's made off coffee, which they never got before Paul came aboard. Paul has created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends and donates 20%
of all internet sales of these mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends to the COVID Response Network. See Google for the COVID Response Network, a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID, and it has been doing so quite successfully. Go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, buy Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee, and support the COVID Response Network. Please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.